Good morning, Woodside. It's uh, a great feeling to be back in this pulpit to deliver the sermon this morning. Uh, We've had the privilege of sending our pastor, Matthew Shores, to the country of Belarus to minister for a week among a church there. Uh, I think he has two days left in his trip, so keep him in prayer for the last uh, few days. Uh, He told me last night he was delivering the message uh, this afternoon to the church over there, so their afternoon would have been a few hours ago. So um, pray that it has much fruit among that church over there. So this morning we're going to be making our way through quite a tough story. It's not tough because it's hard to understand, but it's a story that's painful, it's hard to hear, and it's difficult for us to apply it correctly. So would you turn uh, with me in 1 Samuel chapter 1 as we look at the story of Hannah. And I'll read for you the first 20 verses of it before we exposit this text. It's found on page 225 if you're using a pew Bible. I'll be reading this morning from the English Standard Version. 1 Samuel chapter 1, reading through verses 1 through 20. Hear the word of God. There was a certain man of Ramathim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zeus, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina his wife and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously, to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. And so it went on, year by year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. And she continued praying before the Lord. Eli observed her mouth, and it was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant you your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They arose 
um, early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord, and they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her, and in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I had asked for him from the Lord. Let's pray, and then we'll get into this text. Our gracious God and Father, we know that uh, your word has uh, a power, a beauty, a logical compulsion, and the strength to uh, redeem us, heal us, encourage us, comfort us, correct us, apart from the weakness of the human messenger. And so, Lord, I, I do ask that you would do that this morning. May it not be uh, me standing uh, up here um, delivering this in my own strength, but may we truly experience the power of the word that is independent of the messenger, but through the Holy Spirit. So I pray that for myself and my brothers and sisters this morning as we look at the story of Hannah, and we thank you that it is recorded in the scripture for us. Lord, I pray that we would not see the morality of this text, but ultimately I pray that you would show us Christ through it, and I pray this in his name. Amen. You know, I always love a good story. Now, I find that some people are not great storytellers. I'm a very average storyteller. Now, I'll pick on my mom. My mom is not a good storyteller. And, for example, she might tell me a story about what flavor of Haagen-Dazs ice cream is her favorite. But the story will go on for five minutes. She'll say, oh, I finished work today, and then I was... I lost my Metro card, but then I realized my Metro card was in my pocket, and then I took the bus, and then I went to the supermarket, and then they had a sale on Haagen-Dazs, and I was looking at the flavors, and they had mint, and they had chocolate chip, and they had... And, and three minutes into the story, I'm like, what is the point of this story? What gets to the punchline? And can I confess that I've often looked at the Hannah story, you know, I've read it many, many times, and as I thought about it, preparing for this message, studying in 1 Samuel, and then I, Matt asked me, hey, when you preach again, what do you think you'll preach on? I said, you know, I'd love to preach on Samuel. I've been reading some of the stories, and here's, you know, what, what I think. And he said, yeah, you should preach on Hannah. I was like, um, that would be a great one for our congregation. But as I sort of struggled through it, I come to it and I'm like, what is the point of this story? Uh, everything here can be said in two sentences. It would go, once upon a time, there was a woman named Hannah that really wanted a baby, and eventually God blessed her with the child. The end. Why this whole awkward, painful story in the Bible? I think the reason is that Scripture gives us stories is because a story contextualizes theology for us, in the pain and in the struggle of humanity. It takes us on a journey in search of truth while proclaiming the truth to us. It reads us while we read it. And like any good story, the story of Hannah has a setting and it has characters which gives us a context for understanding it. So as you know, pastor is preaching through the book of Judges, and the period of the Judges is a period of about 430 years after the Israelites came into the Promised Land. So... 430 years, period of the Judges. The story of Hannah comes at the very tail end of the period of the Judges. And before Israel establishes their kingdom with their first king named Saul. So, there we are. We're in between the Judges and the, and the kingdom. 
That's the time period we're in. And then let's talk about the characters. We have uh, a one main character. She would be what we call the protagonist. It's the woman, Hannah. And then we have some supporting characters, the three main supporting characters being her husband, Elkanah. We have another wife. We'll talk about that. Her name is Penina. And there's a priest. His name is Eli. And then we have the circumstance or the problem, which is the reason why we have a story to begin with. Um, verse 2 says of El, uh, Elkanah, he had two wives, and the name of the one was Hannah, the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. So, we have a man who has two wives simultaneously. We call that polygamous marriage. It's not a Mormon idea. It's an ancient Near East social construct that has been around as early as Genesis 4. As long as there has been marriage, there have been people who have attempted to ruin it. Um, but I want you to understand that just because the Bible accurately records the situation of polygamous marriage does not mean that the Bible is endorsing it. You have to keep that distinction clear in your mind. So nobody can rightly say, oh, you say the Bible is the word of God and it's the good book, but look, it has all these terrible things in it. Uh, yes, it records them accurately, but just because something is in the Bible doesn't mean the Bible is endorsing it. In fact, um, poly polygamous marriage is mentioned multiple times in the Bible. Uh, you have Lamech, who has two wives in Genesis 4. You have Jacob, who has Rachel and Leah. You have Abraham, who has Sarah and Hagar. You have Elkanah here in 1 Samuel. And you have the kings, which have multiple wives. But any time the Bible ventures to describe a polygamous marriage in more, more than just mention it in passing, but describe the situation and the family family structure, it's always painted in a negative light. It's always painful, it's always traumatic, it's unglamorous, it's unsexy, and it's heartbreaking. Always, always. There's not a single example in Scripture where it works well. And we could describe, like to help us understand it, a lot of us are, are single, never been married, some are, are married. To help you understand polygamous marriage, in the situation of Hannah, I would describe it like this. Women or men pretend that you are married and that you go through a very painful divorce where you find out that your spouse was cheating on you. And your spouse gets remarried and soon after you meet their new spouse, in essence your replacement. Think about the jealousy and the insecurity, the feeling of loss and the raw hatred that you might experience when you encounter the new spouse. And I think that's what it's like to be in a polygamous marriage, except that it's all day, every day, and guess what? Uh, you have to be a partner, a family member, a team player, and live under the same roof and be a co-spouse with the person you despise who provokes all your envy and all your insecurity. And then, going a little further, um, it's, it's so much worse for Hannah because the text says Hannah has no children, but the other wife, Penina, does. And usually when we see polygamy in the Bible, childbirth inevitably becomes part of the story. It's always part of the story. Sarah could not have children, so she tells Abraham to take Hagar. Uh, the wives of Jacob um, have a contest to see who could have more children with their husband, Jacob. I'm going to assume the possibility that the reason Elkanah has two wives is because his first wife could not get pregnant, so he takes a second wife. 
I want to be clear that Jesus tells us in the New Testament that was never God's intention, but um, it was allowed due to the sinfulness and the hardness of men's hearts. Um, So we're not told that explicitly in the text, but other biblical texts support that idea. This is why this nice Jewish man, Elkanah, who's already married, would have felt compelled to take a second wife. The text lends itself to that interpretation. And then the text shows us how their family life would have played out. It says in verse 3, Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, um, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave her a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. And so it went on year by year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. Now, at this time, the temple does not yet exist. There's a, a temple that's a portable temple, which they call the tabernacle, um, and it's stationed at a place called Shiloh. So it's about 25 miles north of where the uh, temple would eventually be built in Jerusalem. And every year, they go to worship the Lord there, as devout Jews would, and it is there that we see their family dynamics as though it were a really bad reality show. Uh, Elkanah would attempt to show extra compassion to Hannah by giving her a bigger portion of the sacrificed meat. But Penina would provoke Hannah, and she would provoke her about the fact that she didn't have children. And it was grievous, and it was intentional and painful. It happened year after year. And I want to suggest that this went on for at least three or four years in the life of Hannah. Here's why I believe that. Because it says Penina had sons and daughters. And so she has at least two sons or, and at least two daughters and maybe more. And so if we say, you know, the, the children that Penina has are, are spaced pretty, um, you know, not too far apart one after the other, you could say she's got four kids, maybe about four years that Penina has been a mother longer than Hannah, and Hannah has had to watch this, and this plays out for four years or more. Scripture says it went on year after year, and I want you to think about the pain that Hannah must have felt. So, here's my point. Here's my first point. Hannah's barrenness leads to brokenness. And I want to define the word brokenness, because in the 90s and in the new millennium, a lot of Christians would talk about the concept of brokenness and say, oh Lord, I want to be broken before you. That absolutely makes no sense. But um, I'm using the word brokenness to mean the opposite of the Hebrew idea of shalom. Shalom means everything is wholesome, that there's integrity and peace between you and your fellow man and between you and God. But brokenness is the opposite of shalom. It means things are not right. There's pain, there's turmoil, there's suffering. There's not integrity and wholesomeness and peacefulness between you and God. We we see Hannah's brokenness in four ways. So first, we have her social brokenness. She's a woman in a society where personal value and worth is implicitly determined in conjunction with her ability uh, to produce and raise children to her family's name. Think about what that does to her socially. 
It seems everyone else is fulfilling that role except her. The, the mean, spiteful, co-wife Nina has multiple kids, even though she's a terrible mother in this respect, that she uses her kids as a symbol of pride and competition. And poor Hannah um, has, to, has to endure that. She would feel like the odd woman out in her society and in her very own home. Then we have her personal brokenness. Consider the intense pain that Hannah must have felt in her life to get her to the point where the text says she wept and would not eat. How low she must have been brought year after year. And then it leads to marital brokenness. Consider the strain upon her marriage. It becomes her husband's obligation to try to make up for her emotional pain the only way he knows how, by giving her stuff, such as a double portion of meat, by doing outward acts of kindness and compassion to sort of um, help her feel a little bit, a little bit better. So he gives her a double portion of meat at, uh, when, they, when they go to worship and eat the sacrifice. Poor Elkanah, like this guy resonates with me, like, because he's a typical man who does not get it, right? It, it, verse eight, Elkanah, her husband, says to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat and why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? The fact that she's in pain and he can't do anything about it, it inflames his insecurity because he basically says to her, am I not a good enough husband to you that something else is giving you emotional pain? Well, why don't you look to me? Like, think about what a great husband I am. And then it leads to spiritual brokenness. Finally, the real underlying issue we see, underlying everything, is her feeling of disconnectedness from God. That God has blessed others, but excluded her. And I want you to notice something. Uh, here's why I think her spiritual brokenness is highlighted so much. Because the text doesn't tell us, like, you know, that she experiences this great pain day by day as she's in her house, like, cooking and cleaning. She might, but the text is explicit that the pain comes, the provocation comes when she is in the temple, when they go to worship the Lord, when she's in the presence of God, when she's sacrificing to the Lord, when she's sitting down to partake of the sacrifice, that is when she gets provoked, when they go to worship, when they're in the house of the Lord, when she's sitting down to eat, that's when the pain comes. And that leads me to believe that there's something about the provocation where Penina is touching on the fact that she doesn't have kids and what that means for her relationship with the Lord. I imagine what's going on is that as they sit at the meal to partake of the sacrifice, and they're supposed to eat it for similar reasons why we eat the communion, to represent our fellowship with God, our forgiveness in Him, the shalom and the peace between God and man, it is then when Penina provokes him. And I think she probably does something it's saying, oh, oh, really, Hannah? You're going to eat that sacrifice, that double portion of the sacrifice that our husband gave to you? Really? You think everything's right between you and the Lord? I'm not so sure about that, Hannah. I really think something might be wrong between you and the Lord. Like, you should think about that, because God hasn't blessed you. I mean, he's blessed me. Look at my uh, four kids. 
Maybe you're hiding some sin. Maybe you don't have faith. See, this happens in the temple. It happens at the sacrifice, at the yearly worship. Hannah is experiencing spiritual brokenness. Things don't feel right between her and God. And don't you experience this sometimes in your life? Don't you have your Hannah moments, or even your Hannah seasons in your life, where you feel like God has held back from you what he has blessed everyone else with? And it makes you feel like, hey, are things right between me and God? And I want to confess that as, as a single man, sometimes, like, it's not always easy to see my friends, my good friends, whom I love, like Matthew and Melissa, or Dan and Jenny, being in a good marriage and having uh, kids and, and doing that, and then seeing my good friends like Andy and Jen entering into a solid Christ-centered relationship. I feel like, man, why does God bless Andy and not me? And your Hannah type of pain can be something else, right? It doesn't have to be singleness or lack of children. It could be your lack of money or your lack of opportunity or your lack of popularity and relationships in life. And you think you lack what everyone else has. Maybe you lack health or youthfulness or it seems like uh, your circumstances are more difficult than everyone else's. Maybe you feel insecure about your career or the lack of career, or you didn't get the education that you wanted, or you didn't have the parents or the family that you would have wanted. Maybe you're a parent and it's, uh, it was too late before you realized you needed a better relationship with your kids. It could be anything. What is your Hannah pain this morning? What is it that, that presses on you that you're like, wait, why has not God blessed me? God has blessed everyone else except me. What is that in your life that makes you feel that way? Whatever it is, we all experience a pain over circumstances that translates into a sense that God has not been good to us, that he has not blessed us in the way that he has blessed others. And I want you to notice that poor Hannah, there's no comfort for Hannah. Like anyone who could be a comforter fails her. Um, there's no comfort from the co-wife, Penina. You, you've got to come away from this thinking, what a terrible person Penina must be. What a terrible example she is to her kids, that she would sit at the sacrifice in the house of the Lord and in front of her kids taunt another human being. Like, what kind of a person do you have to be to get to that point in your life? Wouldn't it be such a good story and worthy of inclusion in the good book and worthy of emulation if Hannah and Penina found themselves in this uncomfortable, awkward, polygamous marriage, but Penina was a decent human being and treated Hannah like a sister and encouraged her? Right? But that doesn't happen in the story. Penina takes great pleasure, it seems, to methodically and consistently provoke Hannah to tears. But she's not just insensitive to her situation, she exploits it as an opportunity to shame Hannah. But you also have to understand uh, where Penina is coming from. She has her own brokenness that makes her incapable of compassion and decency. For, for one, she's the unloved wife. Like, think about that. She didn't ask for this situation. She entered into this situation, maybe being a little young, being a little immature, in that society not knowing what she was getting into, 
And she's the unloved wife. She sees year by year that her husband gives Hannah a bigger portion of the food, that he has an extra measure of grace and compassion and favor and love upon her. And she wants the love and the favor of her husband, but she can't have it. So she lords over Hannah the fact that she has kids and Hannah does not. No comfort from Penina. Then we have her, her husband. We, we saw the insecurity of Elkanah. Her emotional pain and insecurity leads to his insecurity. Because he says, wait, but why are you sad? Like, am I not a good enough husband to you? Don't I make up for the lack that you're feeling? He says, Hannah, even if we had ten sons, wouldn't I be more valuable to you? And you kind of think he wants, he wants her to answer, oh yeah, I never thought, you know what? You're a great husband. I don't need kids anymore. Like, no, he's a typical guy. And let's not be too hard on him, because, you know, sometimes I have my guy moments where, yeah, I would be like Elkanah as well. But we see his insecurity. But notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't actually comfort her. He he doesn't say, I'm praying for you, Hannah. We're going to get through this together. He doesn't preach the gospel to her. He doesn't encourage her heart. Instead, he tells her, Hannah, look, look to me. Your identity, your sufficiency is, is in me. And let me offer, as an outsider, a little tidbit of advice about marriage that I've heard from other people. Here it is. When you put yourself in a position where you expect your spouse to find their identity and significance in you, But when you look to your spouse to give you self-worth and identity, you put a weight on yourself and on your spouse that you are not going to be able to fulfill. That's what Elkanah does. He says, look to me. I'm your identity. I'm your security. He's putting a weight on himself he's not going to be able to live up to. Then she has no comfort from her own inner resolve. In our world, in our culture, when we go through a difficult circumstance, we train ourselves to boast to ourselves. We say these things to ourselves that will lessen the emotional pain. But Hannah doesn't have those resources. Uh, She can't say, well, let me look on the bright side. At least I could focus on my career. No. Or she can't say to herself, well, at least I don't have to deal with diapers and potty training and back-talking toddlers. Thank God. No, she, she doesn't have those emotional resources for herself. Not in this culture, not after this prolonged pain. So consider that the situation is grievous every day, year after year, that Hannah has no more emotional resources to bear this pain. Then, she gets no comfort from the religious system. She's in the temple, and she's at the worship, she's at the sacrifice, and we would hope that the religious institution of God's people would be a safe place, and one where she could find renewal and hope. And so she gets up, she goes to pray, in verse 12, notice what happens. It says, as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah answered, no, my lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink. 
but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. So consider Eli. He's the senior representative of the Jewish religion. He's the senior priest. He's old. He's been in ministry all his life. I'm sure he has encountered countless people that are seeking the Lord and going through all kinds of pain and suffering in their lives. And Eli is one of the worst comforters in the entire Bible. He's worse than Job's friends. He sees her praying in the depth of her sorrow and he stands in judgment over her and says, put away your wine, you drunkard. Like, who does that? Like, you would hope that as a minister of God's temple, he would get up in the morning and pray before the Lord, Lord, let me shine your light to the people this day. Let me point people towards you. But no, what kind of minister is Eli? He's the worst evangelist in the Bible. He's the worst counselor in the Bible. Here's a perfect opportunity to draw a hurting person close to the Lord, to intercede for them, and he almost blows it. And I want to ask you, I want to ask us as a congregation, is Woodside a safe place for those that are hurting and spiritually broken? Is Woodside the kind of place, the kind of church that someone can come into and say, yes, I believe in Christ, but I'm really struggling to see his presence and his goodness in my life. Is that a safe thing someone can do in this church? Are we that kind of church? And I, I think we are, but only sometimes. I, I think some of the things we have going for us is Woodside is not a very judgmental church. We used to have lots of judgmental people. They left, thankfully, decades ago, uh, eventually. Uh, Woodside is a humble church as well. There's no one that I look at right now that is rich or important. That contributes to us being a humble church. Um, we're also a struggling church. We struggle with money. Uh, we struggle with decisions. We struggle with structure and with our identity as a church. And I think those things make it so that Woodside can be a safe place for the Hannah in all of us. But at the same time, that needs to happen so much more abundantly and apparently. And inasmuch as I call myself part of this church, and you call yourself a part of this church, you have an obligation to create that kind of safety and community in this church where it is okay for someone to rustle through pain and hurt and suffering and be pointed to Jesus Christ. Let us take heart in difficult circumstances, because even though Hannah was not able to see it, even though she went through pain for all these years, we know that God was at work to renew Hannah and to draw her close to himself. Her real problem is not her lack of emotional strength. It's not even the mean-spirited wife, the co-wife. Uh, it's not even that her husband doesn't get it. It's not even the failures of the religious system. And it's not ultimately about the baby. Her real problem is her sense of disconnectedness from the Lord. The real underlying issue is, is that there's a feeling of disconnectedness from the Lord, that she is not in shalom with the Lord, that she is not at peace with Him, that God hasn't heard her, that God hasn't been good to her, that He has blessed others 
but he has excluded her. And in this story, what happens is that God is allowing all of this pressure to build and to squeeze upon Hannah. You've got the family pressure. You've got the social pressure. You've got the pressure in her marriage. You've got the personal stress, the deep depression, and the spiritual emptiness. And all that squeezes upon Hannah so as to drive her to the Lord. And isn't that a mercy of the good and sovereign God that he arranges the circumstances of our lives that we may start to feel crushed under the weight of circumstances that we might seek him fully and ultimately? That, that is God being merciful. That is not God being mean to Hannah or excluding Hannah for four, five, six, how many ever years. That is his mercy to her even though, going through it, it doesn't seem like mercy. And thankfully, the story is there. The story doesn't go, once upon a time, there was Hannah and she had a baby, and the end. Like, it, it takes us through this journey of her pain and her insecurity so that it can resonate with us. So she prays and she makes a vow. She pours out her soul to the Lord. Um, notice in, in uh, verse 17, Eli answered, Go in peace, uh, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. The woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. But notice at what point she is delivered from sorrow. She has not even yet gotten the answer to her prayer, and she is delivered from her sorrow. It says her face was no longer sad, and she ate. She finds hope and peace with the Lord. Like She is no longer sad. She's able to eat now uh, before her prayer is even answered. And that makes me believe that at the heart of it, the struggle is not about getting the baby. It's about it's about the feeling that God has not heard her, that he's forgotten about her, that he has not been favorable towards her. So Hannah is delivered when God puts her in the place where she pours out everything to the Lord in petition and says, O oh Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. Hannah could have walked away from the temple that day and died the next day, and the prayer was answered because she was restored. She was, uh, she was at peace with God once she walks away from that temple. The Lord turned her insecurity into assurance of his favor. He turns her anxiety into rest. He turns her brokenness into shalom and wholesomeness before he even gives her the answer to her prayer. I believe the point was not just so that she could be a mom and do mom things and make decisions about what kind of baby food she's going to buy or read bedtime stories or watch the baby grow or have cute baby clothes. And that might be beautiful and good and fulfilling, but ultimately that was not what she was after. She was after a sense of of shalom with God, a sense of peace with God. Because to her, she said, you, you haven't given me this, you've given it to everyone else, and that represents that there's something wrong between me and you. So how do we make that right? When you go through your um, Hannah circumstances, 
where you don't see a harmony between God's sovereignty and His goodness, what does this text offer us? Isn't that the struggle? That we know He's in control, but we don't see His goodness. You know He's sovereign. Hannah had great theology. She believed in the sovereignty of God, but she was struggling to see His goodness. It's like she says, I know He's in control, but but how can it be good? She's looking for the assurance that God loves her and is on her side and has given her his favor. Eventually, Hannah has a son, and she names him Samuel, which means, if you didn't know, I asked him from God, and it also means God heard. So what about us? What do we do with the circumstances that make us think that God has not been good to us, that he has been good to everyone else but not us. You know, we could close the we could close the text now, and we could say, okay, we're going to close in prayer, and you can walk away from this sermon thinking that the key is that when you really pray really strongly and you make a vow, then God will answer. You know, a lot of people use this text to teach a really weird, really terrible theology of prayer. But I I think the text pushes us deeper than that. What did God provide for Hannah? He provided for Hannah a son. What did God provide for us to redeem us and to renew us, to assure us of his love and his forgiveness and his favor? Didn't he give us the same thing? He provided a son. He provided the Son, Jesus Christ. See, the story of Samuel points us to the Gospel. It points us to Jesus. Here's why. Let me make that connection so apparent for you. Consider the important role that Samuel plays in our salvation. See, if Hannah had not been barren, she would not have felt the hopeless insecurity that she feels day after day year after year, a sense of disconnectedness from the Lord. And if she wasn't in that year after year bitterness in her soul, she wouldn't have gotten to the point where she prays and vows her vow to the Lord. And if she did not pray, there would not have been an answer to her prayer. And she asked, and God heard. That's what Samuel means. It means both uh, asked of God and heard by God. And if there was no Samuel, who was born and then dedicated to the temple, he could not have become the prophet and the priest and the judge over Israel when God destroys Eli and his family for their wickedness. And if Samuel was not in that position of authority as a prophet, priest, and a judge, he could not have anointed King David. For nobody else at the time had the wisdom and the inspiration from God to know that God had chosen David, who was the youngest and the smallest uh, son of Jesse. And if there was no King David, then there would be no King Jesus. And you would still be in your sin, and so would I. So, a thousand years after the story of Hannah, here's what happens. We come to the New Testament, we meet a man in the New Testament who is a descendant of King David. A man named Joseph. He is engaged to a woman named Mary. 
and it's Mary's biological son, and Joseph's adopted son, Jesus, who is of the tribe of Judah, who is of the kingly line of David, who will fulfill God's promise to David that one of his descendants would sit on the throne forever and ever. In Luke 1, which Andy read this morning, when Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, who, guess what, was also childless, who then had a child, who was John the Baptist, who would point the people of Israel to the true king, King Jesus, the same way Samuel points the people to King David. Notice the parallel between Old Testament and New Testament. When Mary enters into Elizabeth's house, she is quoting from Hannah's prayer of deliverance, which Hannah praise in chapter 2. She's making allusions to it, and she's directly quoting some of it. And so I want to argue that the ultimate fulfillment of the story of Hannah is not the son of the barren woman. It's the son of the virgin. The point is not Samuel, it's Emmanuel. And the assurance that you have today of God's love for you and his favor upon you, even in the midst of your hurt and your trials, is that he has given you a son. He has given you Jesus. He has given for us the son. And though you and I struggle under hard circumstances like Hannah, if we're honest, sometimes we are like the Peninnas of the world who mask their insecurity by looking down upon others. We are like Elkanah, so insecure that we are out of touch with our fellow man. And we are often like Eli, with religion all around us, but a heart that is insensitive towards God. And the gospel for the Hannahs and the Peninnas and the Elkanahs and the Elis among us are that you and I are broken under the disparaging weight of sin. That is what really and truly separates us from God. Sometimes we're like Hannah, a victim of the sinful, cold world, but often we're like Penina and Eli, where we are the perpetrators of the coldness and the sinfulness and the provocation in the world. And to rescue us, God gives us his son. God puts the weight of our sin upon his back so that he might be crushed under it. There is a weight of pain and spiritual disconnectedness and suffering that Christ endures, that Hannah and you and I don't know a shadow of. Because we can't bear up under it, but Christ can. So he is crushed by judgment for our sins. He is alienated from God because of our sin, and he agonizes on the cross under God's wrath. But he is crushed so that we might be made whole. He is alienated so that we might be restored. And he agonizes so that we might be comforted. And as we close, I want to encourage us. May Woodside be a safe place for those who hurt and struggle. Often, we tend to act as though God is only working in us when we are outwardly happy. But we see from the story that God is at work in Hannah despite the pain that she is going through. And when we create a church where you have to be happy in order to be part of the church or to be seen as in fellowship with God or to be seen as though God is working in your life, we do a disservice to the identity of Christianity because that's not Christianity. God is big enough to uphold us even through our emotional pain because 
it's not our emotional state, it's not our happiness or lack thereof that commends us to a right relationship with God, it's Christ. Secondly, may we know that the ultimate fulfillment that we are looking for and striving after and broken over, God is already provided in Jesus Christ. And this morning, may you be strengthened and refreshed in that good news. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for your goodness, Father. We, we thank you for um, the Son that you have provided, the Son, Jesus Christ, who uh, bears the crushing weight of our sin that we could not bear ourselves. Lord, we, we thank you for him. I pray um, concerning myself and each of my brothers and sisters here. Father, help us to see uh, Christ um, in his beauty um, and his greatness proclaimed to us from the text of First Samuel that we might uh, love him as we uh, behold him. I pray this all in Christ's name.